Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Kua whakaroi ka maine i te ranei. Kua wai o pepeha. Kua slifoi te maunga. Kua Callingford Lock te awa. Kua McKevitt te iwi. Kua Bruce toko papa. Kua Jeanette toko mama. Kua Luke. Kua Levi and kua Luke taku tāma. Kua Anna hoa rangatera. Kua Aaron Takawangua, Norada, Tenakoto, 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 Katoa. Good morning um, and welcome. And I do usually spend Sundays out teaching frequency um, where I bore the young people with one particular phrase, which is about as good, maybe over further, uh, that I am hoping to inspire and grow in them a biblical imagination. And so we have a, an object lesson today. Frequency is in. So um, leave that as a bit of a surprise, but please, um, yeah, this is, this is a little object lesson that we're having um, as well today. I hope that it's memorable for you also. We have had a number of um, people share and on a general, I guess, theme of sharing um, their faith and uh, evangelism, that sort of thing. And so um, I've kind of baked in as much uh, into that theme, um, into this talk today as I can. Uh, it's not straight up about that. But um, but yeah, if if you have a keen ear, you'll hear. What, hopefully, you'll hear what I've tried to add to and contribute to that conversation. And um, while I'm doing a start off introduction and disclaimer, I just want to say that um, this there's some scholarship today that um, I owed and a story that I owe to a pastor who who speaks at um, Trinity Grace Church in Williamsburg uh, called Tyler Stadden. So um, let me not pretend that I came up with the scholarship myself. I just wanted to credit him. I can't quote him because it's a bit long to do the exact quote, but um, credit where credit's due. So just wanted to say that as I start, uh, 2008 was a much simpler time on the internet. Uh, parents and grandparents weren't yet on Facebook. It was still quite new. Instagram um, had yet to have its first birthday. The iPhone, we're up to the second one, the iPhone 3G. And um, this is a fun fact for some of you. Avril Lavigne Girlfriend was the most viewed uh, clip on YouTube at the time. So there's a throwback for you. But for me, the best thing the internet had to offer at that time were blogs. And my brother and I bonded over the shared love of a blog called Stuff White People Like. Again, like a bit of a tricky thing to talk about now, but at that time... Uh, it was a blog devoted to very, very high-quality um, ribbing of what was then called hipster culture, which has kind of gone away as a thing. But um, my brothers considered me sort of over the entry point toward uh, being blogging in the category of hipster anyway, and so it just aided them in their sort of ribbing of me and the things that I thought were important in my hobbies. But it was so good that even though I liked the things that it was making fun of, I just always looked forward to the next entry that came out. And I just want to give you some samples from the list of things, stuff white people like. Number one, coffee, the world's greatest drink. We can all agree there. That's a non-controversial option, item. Number 23, microbreweries. Cast, cast your mind back 12 years ago before craft beer had become everybody's beer and um, it was sort of this niche um, thing. Number 108 was appearing to enjoy classical music. I think that we can all say that we've been guilty of that from time to time. Number 87, outdoor performance clothes. 
My personal favorite was number 18, which was awareness. You know, not change, but awareness. Bringing awareness to an issue. And here's a personal confession. My interaction with this list as it grew, I liked so many of the things that they decided to make fun of. When something came up that I'd never heard of, I thought, oh, this is probably going to be good. And um, it was a place to discover. (laughs) Number 10 on the list was Wes Anderson movies. I love Wes Anderson movies. I'm not a cinephile by any means, but when his new films come out, I go two or three times at the cinemas, um, and I've watched them all a bunch of times. He's got this really intricate, quirky, ornate style, and he is a purveyor of what's called mise-en-scene, which is taking the utmost care and attention to every shot, every detail. And he creates these almost... Hunter, are you with me? Boom. You might recognise some of these colours and stuff, but he creates these almost dollhouse kind of worlds um, by just paying utmost attention to every scene. And I think like filmmakers, today we have such a pressure to present this perfect um, life, this perfect image. Society tells us that we need to curate perfection in our body, in our clothes, their finances, at school, as a parent and as a grandparent. And we want to do that. We want to show our success. We want to share our success. We want to be proud of the things that we have worked hard for. But unlike filmmakers, we live in the real world. We don't have multi-million dollar budgets. We don't have full editorial control over everything that we do and everything that happens. And most of all, we can't go back We can't just um, do another shoot and leave our our failures on the cutting room floor. We react in ways that we aren't proud of, and our actual performance, if we call it that, is far from our own ideal. And our critics, most of all ourselves, let us know. So this morning, I want to invite us to take our minds off of our own performance and, and look at, take in God's character. I believe that like taking in a great work of art, that we can be moved, we can um, be awed, we can be inspired. But as we look at God's faithfulness this morning, I believe that we can also be freed from the pressure to perform uh, and released into rest. So we're going to do that this morning uh, in three parts. We're going to start with the story of the whole Bible, uh, faithfulness and freedom, and then finish with the greatest story ever told. So the story of the whole Bible. Ooh, settle in. It's already been a bit long already. Get ready. Genesis 1.1. That was a lame joke, but it was fun. So the story of the Bible is that there is a God who created all things. And it says at the start of the Bible that the earth was uh, formless and that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. That God spoke and that Spirit brought to life what was said and the earth was created. And the, the Bible says the pinnacle of God's creation was man. The only thing that the Bible says was created in God's image. But man didn't trust God's good boundaries or that wouldn't want to stay in the position of creature and wanted to be equal with God, and this choice marred man and marred God's good creation. Out of love for his good creation, God set about a restoration project immediately. First calling Abraham, 
and then of his own good uh, free choice deciding on his chosen people to be uh, the nation of Israel. When his chosen people were oppressed in Egypt, he liberated them. Getting Israel out of Egypt uh, was, was the easy part or the first part. Then um, after 430 years of slavery, he still had, to, had, had a big job of getting um, Egypt out of Israel. And so he gave them his law to retrain their imagination so that they could learn to relate properly to their creator and live in congruence with God's good created order and live a flourishing life. But we know that they struggled with that. They struggled with those good boundaries. And much of the story of the, of the nation is repeated cycles of repentance, of turning toward, back toward God and right living, followed by gradual deterioration, followed by wrong living and loyalty to other gods, and then some sort of crisis followed by repentance and over again. And all through this history, God was faithful to his people. He raised up prophets who spoke God's very own words to the people to call them back to repentance and to live in right relationship with their creator. And they also brought startling messages of hope, startling visions of of a future where God's creation was restored to how it once was. They spoke especially of an anointed saviour who had come, who would bring liberation not just for Israel but for all people and for all of creation. And in time, the creator himself stepped into his story. As a man, he showed his people what it was, truly what God's nature was like. Through his life of love and compassion, through miracles, through casting out evil, he reached down into broken lives. And when the time came, he walked to Calvary to show how much compassion and love he had. The rest of the story is the first-hand accounts of Jesus' spirit-filled followers and the church that was birthed out of, their, um, out of that and the letters that its leaders wrote to encourage um, believers from all around the world, believers who had realized that the good news of the death and resurrection of this anointed Savior was also their good news. So that's our orientation this morning. God is faithful to his creation, and he is still working out his restoration project. So from the widest zoom lens to, to, to zooming right in, I'm going to have a look at a couple of verses uh, from the book of First John this morning. John uh, was Jesus' most beloved disciple. He was his closest friend and confidant. And he writes this letter as an older pastor. Um, he writes it in the context of, of a fatherly relationship with the churches and the people that he's been in relationship with. And if I invite you to turn to First uh, John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Chapter 3 is about um, just instructions and, and uh, from John to his church to say, avoid sin. And if you do that, as you do that, you need to, um, if you, sorry, if you do know him, then you will love, you'll show. Your life will be um, an advertisement for love. So verse 19 and 20, first in the NIV, I just want to read that. Let's read together. Me with my voice and you with your eyes. Clarity. It says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. 
if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And I just want to read this also from a translation called The Voice, which is reasonably new and it, um, it works to communicate as much of the story of the Bible as possible. In The Voice translation it says, There is a sure way for us to know that we belong to the truth. Even though our inner thoughts may condemn us with storms of guilt and constant reminders of our failures, we can know in our hearts that in His presence, God Himself is greater than any accusation. He knows all things. So it talks in these, in this, these verses about the heart. And in the Bible, the heart is the center of conviction. It, it talks of um, and is used for feelings and, and emotions and those kinds of things. But it most often speaks of our deep conclusions. And this verse says that if our hearts condemn us, what does that mean? I guess I, I, I'm, I'm hopefully not alone in, in having those kinds of feelings where we feel like we have either done the wrong thing or we haven't done the right thing or things haven't gone the way that we'd wished them to go and that weighs heavily on us. And what John is saying here is that greater than any evidence of those feelings, any greater than um, those things that weigh on us is God that he knows all things and he is greater than even our own hearts. So why is John emphasizing this to his family? Why is he saying that greater than your feelings, greater than even those convictions, God um, is, is God's faithfulness and what God has done? I reckon it's because it's so hard. It's such a hard habit to break. I think we're so trained uh, in performance. We're so trained, as even as young children, we catch on. I know what I should do. I know do what my mum and dad say. And if I do good things, then I'll get some snakes after church. Or I'll... That's our personal little... One of our incentives. But I was so surprised at the age that Levi learned that he could lie. He could say something else other than what had happened um, because he wanted to have the good result um, that for something that he hadn't done. At school, we learn this. We learn the peer group dance of what it takes to be accepted, what it takes to be uh, valued and welcomed. And these days, that's quantified. Social media has quantified who the cool kids are for people of all ages. And so we've got this measure. We've, we've got, uh, we're trained in comparison, and we're trained in looking for um, where I fit in and, and that sort of thing. So, and, and this was acutely aware, I became acute, I acute, thought about this a lot um, during lockdown. I don't know, lockdown presented unique challenges to all of us. For me, uh, living and working at home um, was really fun for the first two to four days. And after that, uh, it got more challenging there weren't, the things that I loved to do were uh, turned off. We weren't allowed to go anywhere. Um, I wasn't able to see my workmates. I was, you know, the days dragged on and they were slow at home. And, you know, and the, after I'd finished work, I was still at home, so I had nowhere to go. Uh, we had some family walks, which were great. I mean, hands up who baked bread. The, 
the daily fresh focaccia just didn't make up for, um, though it was yum, make up for all of the stuff that I love to do and the things that I get worth, uh, my, take my um, esteem from. And I wasn't able to connect with God in some of the ways that I love to do that. We weren't able to come together um, like we are this morning. And those are the things that um, I love to do and get a lot out of. Um, but also they are what I use to kind of measure myself as a good person or not. Um, not quite as explicitly as that. I don't have a little sticker chart at home for whether I'm a good person. But that was what I was wrestling with. I was wrestling with this, oh, who am I if I'm not doing stuff? Who am I if I'm not... I'm caring for people, who am I if I don't have a chance to check in on or um, buy this person coffee or whatever it is. And I, I presume that you guys all have a story um, like that, not just for lockdown, but um, you've got, we've got these things that are central to who we are and, um, and they are what we uh, measure ourselves by. But my worth and value in God's eyes has nothing to do with what I'm doing and the things that I was so caught up in. And at the end of this, this verse, it says that he knows all things. So it's not like we can hide anything anyway. Um, yeah. So I just want to f- um, finish with the last story, which is the greatest story ever told. A father had two sons. One of the sons came to his dad and said, Dad, can I have my inheritance now? I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I'd like it now, please. And the father did that. He gave his son half of the estate. And his son left. He stepped off the property. He lived it up on the best food. He bought a beautiful, I'm guessing, this is creative license. He bought a beautiful house. He invited his friends over. He enjoyed himself and he enjoyed his father's wealth. And then at some point, his wealth was gone, his estate was finished. It says that a famine came onto the land, and so after a brief unpaid internship in the agricultural sector, he turned for home. (laughs) He headed home to work for his dad. He said, who he thought to him, he realized, at least my father's hired servants have got enough to eat. And this captures part of our religious response as humans, as part of uh, uh, being, being human, that, you know, he tried to, he said, I know what I'll do, I'll go home and I'll earn it back. I'll become a hired servant, I'll work really hard. I'll try and fix what is broken using the same means that broken in the first place, which is, is what we do when we're trying to earn stuff. And I'm writing the assumption that we in this church are really familiar with this story, the story of the prodigal son. And maybe you've jumped ahead already in the story. And I, Jewish, uh, the Jewish listeners whom Jesus was talking with will have jumped ahead too. Jesus' audience lived in an honor and shame culture. So this son hadn't only humiliated his father, the son had humiliated the whole family and the whole community. When Jesus says, when he came to his senses and and headed for home, his audience would have jumped ahead too. They would have said, I know what's coming. This guy's going to get what he he deserves. What was waiting for him was called a kezazah ceremony, 
what would happen in a, um, if a Jewish um, person lost, his, lost um, his inheritance among the Gentiles was that he would come home and he would be facing um, a Kezazar ceremony. The elders of the community and all of the community would gather together and they would stand on one side with the, shame, uh, the shamed person or, the, the, in this case, the son on the other side. And they would take with them clay pot, a plain clay pot, and then the, whoever was the elder or the leader in the community, with all of the community behind them, would say to the, they would take the pot, I'm just going to put this down, and the pot represented the irredeemable, the irredeemability of, of the person. They were cut off, they were broken, and that was it. That's what the sun was facing down. And there would have been some astute members who were listening to Jesus. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in this story. A lot of people would have been going, here he comes, we're just going to get what he, what he deserves. But... Some of the, it says that some of the Pharisees did recognize Jesus as standing in the line of the prophets. And they would have recognized, oh no, he's telling our story. Finally, this time we've gone too far and he's come, he's going to say, that's it. You've had so many chances and you're cut off. But the story doesn't end like that. The father, as we know, he picks up his robes and he runs and he runs because he has to he's got to get there first this is the type of this in the shame and honor culture of the day there was no coming back from a ceremony like this they were cut off so he, he had to get there first and you've probably heard that bearing a, as an elder bearing your legs was um was shameful that to, to pick up your and to run um as a man was also something that nobody did So this father, he's watching and waiting. And how long does it take to spend half of an estate? You know, how long is he waiting for, knowing that he's got to get there first? That's what Jesus is saying in this story. He builds up the story to the point where the son is about to be cut off. And it never happens. The son is honored. He's given a ring, a robe, um, a feast, and a welcome. And the father takes on the humiliation on himself so that his son never feels any of the shame. That's God's faithful character to us. He's watching and he's waiting and his hands are gripping the bottom of his robes in order to run out to meet you. I just want to invite the band to come up again. just want to finish with this. Health and safety. Um, I just want to finish with this. I just, I hope that I've, yeah, I wanted to to look deeply into God's faithfulness. But in doing so, I just, I just want to finish by saying that the son did turn for home. John stood as the witness when Jesus told this story, and he stood uh, with the mother of a son who wasn't spared. 
the father took on the shame. Um, but to do that, another son did perfectly obey his father, but had his body treated like this pot for us. And John, at the, at the start of First John, he spends a lot of time talking about how Jesus, uh, how God is um, in the light, and that um, in His presence, uh, that yeah, that God's presence is in the light. And I just wanted to finish with a with a with, a, with utmost respect to your sovereignty that um, that we do. We have to come into the light. Um, that though God's faithfulness does take away our shame and take away our need to perform. Um, we do need to return to relationship with him. Cool. I'd like to pray and I'd like to invite the band um, just to give us a time to reflect and um, to finish with a song. So, Lord, just pray that you would make... Um, these stories and um, what might have in the past been rumours or um, would you make them true to us, Lord? Would you help us to see that this is our story too? Uh, Would you make this story so true to us, Lord Jesus? Just pray that anyone here who may feel like they um, have gone too far and that they're finally... um, you know, that they are going to be cut off, Lord. Would you make this story true to them? And would you retrain their imagination, Lord, that you are just such a faithful God. You're faithful because that is your character. Not because of anything that we have done. And I just thank you for your word and for your encouragement, Lord, and for this time together this morning. Amen.